an mRNA vaccine against SARS-CoV-2 preliminary report by Lisa Jackson, MDMPH, Evan J. Anderson, MD, Nadine G. Rufael, MD, Paul C. Roberts, PhD, Mamodiko McKenney, uh, MDMPH, Rhea N. Kohler, PhD. I mean, there's a lot of authors here, so I'm just going to go with the typical scientific trope of et al. to encompass everyone. What's up, everyone? I wanted to create an addendum to the podcast of these short clips on research with the objective of not just kind of esoterically talking about scientific literacy, but to perhaps actually engage with real research studies. So welcome to Citations. My name is Anand Naik. I'm a third-year medical student at the Carl Illinois College of Medicine at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. This isn't going to be as regular of episode as the normal weekly ones. By the way, this Sunday, I'm going to be putting out a conversation that I had with Dr. Reefsteck, who's an inpatient pediatrician and one of the leaders at Carl Foundation Hospital. Uh, and I'll talk about that more kind of towards the end of this uh, sub-podcast. But uh, I really hope to, in this citations episode, hope to publish any, uh, and discuss rather, any interesting research that is out there on topics that I think are relevant or newsworthy. So here's how this is going to work. Uh, I'm going to go over a paper with you that I haven't read yet. I've skimmed it a little bit, but um, not really extensively looked at it. Uh, and we're going to essentially read uh, it together. I'm going to walk you through how to approach looking at this paper. It's largely going to be uncut, so you might hear some stuttering here and there. And I'm going to do my best to minimally edit this. I want to break down the barriers, ultimately, of scientific papers. I think oftentimes we rely on news outlets to interpret and condense articles and research to us. And the problem this has is that oftentimes news sources can sensationalize what the outcomes of any scientific study would be. And that leaves us disempowered because... We don't truly know what is conjecture and what are the true facts of a research study. So by going to the source, we can hopefully try to overcome this barrier and learn science along the way. So let's dive into it. Just as quick background about this paper, this is a paper that was published in November 12th, 2020. So it's still recent. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And it's titled, An mRNA Vaccine Against SARS-CoV-2 Preliminary Report by Lisa Jackson, MDMPH, Evan J. Anderson, MD, Nadine G. Rufael, MD, Paul C. Roberts, PhD, Mamodiko McKenney, uh, MDMPH, Rhea N. Kohler, PhD. I mean, there's a lot of authors here, so I'm just going to go with the typical scientific trope of at all to encompass everyone. So this paper was published uh, to encompass the first phase one trial by Moderna. A lot of you asked me to talk about the phase three clinical trial, and that paper isn't out yet, 
But in the interim, I figured I could talk about the phase one clinical trial paper. So let's get started with the abstract here. The Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2, or SARS-CoV-2, emerged in late 2019 and spread globally, prompting an international effort to accelerate development of a vaccine. The candidate vaccine, mRNA-1273, encodes the stabilized perfusion SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. So uh, it's an mRNA vaccine, that's what this article tells us. mRNA, if you remember from your high school biology class, is one of the two types of ways individual cells in the body store information. The first is DNA. DNA is essentially permanent in our body. It's how the cell divides the information into two uh, sets and its offspring, how it conveys the blueprints of how the cell is to be recreated. Uh, and the mRNA is a way for the nucleus to convey to its machines the blueprint to recreate proteins. So it's more temporary. It's, it's, a, it's a code that breaks down after it is used. So uh, it's essentially this vaccine injects the mRNA to code for the spike protein on the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Now you've probably seen this spike protein without actually knowing that you're looking at the spike protein. If you looked at a picture of the coronavirus, it's like this giant ball with spikes coming out of it with little smaller balls on the tip of those spikes and the spike protein is that spike. So to condense everything I've just said, this vaccine is injecting the temporary blueprint to recreate that spike protein so that our body can then recognize that spike protein when coronavirus actually does attack our body and have a remembered immune response against that spike protein. Let's go to the methods. We conducted a phase one dose escalation open label trial, including 45 healthy adults, 18 to 55 years of age, who received two vaccinations, 28 day apart, with mRNA-1273 in a dose of 25 micrograms, 100 micrograms, or 250 micrograms. There were 15 participants in each dose group. So uh, the way I understand it is it's a phase one clinical trial. So let's, actually, let's take a quick detour and talk about phases of clinical trials. So really, there's five total phases of clinical trials but it starts with phase zero, so it actually only goes to phase four. Phase four is really the first clinical trial. Okay, this is future enough. I said four, I really meant phase zero. Phase zero clinical trial is the first tier of clinical trial. It's done with a very small amount of people, and the goal of the trial is to figure out how the drug, or in this case vaccine, is processed and uh, by the body and how it affects the body. Um, it's always a very small dose given in a phase zero clinical trial. Uh, this is a phase one clinical trial. In this case, you're essentially determining the best dosage that works. So uh, in the paper, they say it's a dose escalation trial. So every group receives a slightly higher dose of the vaccine, which is why one group gets 25, another group gets 100 micrograms, and the last group gets 250 micrograms. So that's why they're determining the best dose, and each of the small groups has 15 to 30 patients. In this case, in this trial, it has 15. 
A phase 2 clinical trial is also looking at safety and is looking to see if the drug works or the vaccine works. And um, usually phase 2 clinical trials are usually associated with cancer trials. Um, They're done oftentimes with larger groups of patients. And uh, in this phase, oftentimes new combinations of drugs will be tested. Cancer therapy is very complex and sophisticated. We can talk about that a different time. Instead, they're going to go through a phase three clinical trial, which is what Moderna is talking about. So phase three clinical trial compares the new treatment to the standard of care treatment. In this case, standard of care is nothing because we don't have one, but we'll probably get the methods whenever that paper is actually published. Uh, These trials are typically randomized, and um, that usually means that you put patients into different treatment groups. And uh, you need to randomize people because you don't want to introduce any sort of bias into the group. And um, so you have these randomized groups. So chances are, in this case, for the vaccine, they probably used a placebo group. Um, And then you watch the patients over time, make sure you're monitoring for side effects and things like that. And then the last phase, which is the phase four clinical trial, occurs after the drug or the treatment has been approved by the FDA. So right now, Moderna is applying for emergency approval by the FDA. So after they get that approval, they'll probably start enrolling patients for their phase four clinical trial. Um, And this is when they introduce hundreds of thousands of patients, potentially. Uh, And you're at this point looking at validating the results of the phase three trial, because, you know, it's already been approved. So you're essentially not Really, you're not expecting to see any new things, tremendously new things, but it's a good step in the process. Okay, let's get back to the methods. So they have this trial. They're giving two vaccines, 20 day, 28 days apart with different doses. Um, so you might wonder why they're giving two vaccines. Well, it's possible that in the first vaccine, you're trying to introduce this new... Um, the reason why they're giving two vaccines is because at first you need to introduce the spike protein to see if you actually do see a response from introducing this mRNA virus. This mRNA virus is a very new thing, so they want to validate that, hey, can we get this response where the spike protein levels in the body increase? And then the second response, the second vaccination is to make sure that the body can actually get rid of the spike proteins, right? The immune system can coalesce and work together to destroy the spike protein that is a foreign body. And so here's what the results show from the abstract. After the first vaccination, antibody response were higher with higher doses. Day 29 enzyme-linked aminosorbent assay anti-S2P antibody geometric mean titer Um, And then it shows the dosing in each of the groups. So um, the the assay that they're using, it's called an ELISA assay. It's a very classic um, assay that is used in chemistry and biology to figure out how much of a protein is in the fluid. So in this case, they're looking at serum, which is the blood, and they're looking to see how much uh, of this protein is there. And what they're showing is the higher the dose they give for the vaccine, the more antibodies are produced against 
the protein they're creating, which is a great thing. That's essentially what you want to see. And then it's asking, after the second vaccination, serum neutralizing activity was detected by two methods in all participants evaluated with values generally similar to those in the upper half of the distribution of a panel of control convalescent serum specimens. So this is a lot of jargon in this sentence, but what it's saying is that after the second vaccine, they're looking to see the antibodies doing their job. The antibodies essentially flag the protein, and the goal of flagging the protein is to let the immune cells in your body to know that this is a foreign molecule, this is a molecule that's harmful, and to let the immune system then destroy that molecule. So what they're saying here is that the they use two different methods um, to determine if they could if the serum neutralizing activity was detected, which is the ability of your immune system to destroy or to neutralize the antibody, the antigen, which is the protein, which is what the antibody binds to. And uh, it's saying that these values were similar to the control group. So if they took a patient who was part of the control and they looked at their blood and saw how many antibodies were against the spike protein, you would expect very few, obviously, because they're not exposed to the coronavirus spike protein. And so they're saying that in that distribution, um, the immune system was able to get rid of the, the protein so well that it was comparable to the control group. So uh, then it says the solicited adverse effects that occurred in more than half the participants included fatigue, chills, headache, myalgia, pain at the injection site. Um, these are very typical uh, symptoms that you experience from any type of vaccination. So it's not that surprising. Um, systemic adverse effect events were more common after the second vaccination, particularly with the highest dose and three participants in the 250 microgram dose group reported one or more severe adverse events. Now, in this case, in the abstract, they don't describe what those uh, uh, severe events were. I anticipate they will discuss them more in detail. But essentially what they're saying is that after the second vaccine that they delivered to the patients, they had a higher um, systemic or whole body response. And uh, the higher the dose, the higher likelihood that they developed a more severe adverse reaction, which again makes sense. Right now, they're not trying to see, does this vaccination work? Uh, they're also trying to figure out what dosing to administer this vaccine. And so the conclusions are that the mRNA-1273 vaccine induced anti-SARS-CoV-2 immune response in all participants, and no trial-limiting safety concerns were identified. These findings support further development of this vaccine, and then they talk about funding from the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease. So essentially what they're saying is that in all the people that received this mRNA vaccine, they were able to see this generated immune response, which is the purpose of a vaccine. The purpose of a vaccine is to give you either a part of the virus, or in this case, give you the blueprint, temporary blueprint, to create the spike protein on the surface of the coronavirus and let your immune system create a plan of attack when the actual virus comes around. In this case, they've done so. Um, so I'm going to take a quick break and you're going to hear from future Ananth after having 
skim this paper a little bit more to talk about the essential addendums to what we've already read in the abstract. Hey, so it's future Anant here, and I want to correct, make a brief correction. I said initially that a phase two trial of this virus uh, vaccination is probably not going to happen, and I was wrong. Um, there is actually a phase two clinical trial ongoing. Uh, at least it was ongoing at the time publication of this paper, and uh, it's enrolled 600 healthy adults, and they're evaluating the doses of 50 micrograms and 100 micrograms. Um, it has the clinicaltrials.gov number NCT 04405076. Uh, so if you're interested in looking that up, please do so. But let's go back and talk briefly about some things that the paper talked about in greater detail that I think are relevant to this discussion of the phase one clinical trial. So remember, the phase one clinical trial is talking about the dose escalation. They're looking at different doses and seeing how effective they are. And they have an interesting chart here that looks at the different symptoms, side effects of the vaccines. And um, they're saying that based on the doses, 250 microgram doses were probably too severe. And it caused a higher rate of any symptomatic, systemic symptom, sorry. Uh, it, it has the higher likelihood of developing a severe fever, uh, severe fatigue. It has the higher likelihood of developing severe chills, uh, severe headaches. So um, the, this type of response is probably why in the phase two clinical trial, they're only looking at the 50 microgram and the 100 microgram dose. In terms of the dose response, what they're saying is that the median magnitude of antibody response, which is the measurement that they're using to see how well the body mounts an immune response to the spike protein they're introducing, is pretty comparable between 100 micrograms and 250 micrograms, which is why it doesn't make sense to go to the 250 microgram level if the 100 microgram dose gives the same or comparable level of response to the 250 micrograms. Okay, so let's do a very quick recap of what we talked about. This is a phase one clinical trial paper. The study looks at the phase one clinical trial results, which as we talked about, are looking at the dose response. What dose of this vaccine works best? They had 45 patients enrolled healthy adults that received two vaccinations 28 days apart of this mRNA-1273 vaccine for the spike protein in the coronavirus. And what they found was that out of the three doses, 100 micrograms was probably the best dose. Why? Because it had the best antibody response comparably and had the least amount of side effects. It was, it was the Goldilocks zone of vaccination doses in this case, didn't have as many side effects, and it had the appropriate dose to mount an immune response to protect patients against the spike protein in the coronavirus. In the future, what they're going to do is they're going to publish the results of the phase two clinical trial, which is of the 600 healthy adults, and they're now evaluating the doses between 50 micrograms and 100 micrograms. And 
Eventually, they'll publish the results of the larger Phase 3 efficacy trial, which is evaluating the 100 microgram dose, and we'll talk about that paper when it comes out. Okay, so hopefully you learned some stuff. Uh, I know I certainly did. This Sunday, the podcast that I'm going to be publishing is episode two of Teaching Science. And that's the main podcast. That's going to be my conversation with Dr. Reefsteck, who's an inpatient pediatrician and one of the leaders at Carl Foundation Hospital. He's dedicated much of his career educating patients. And we talk extensively about COVID-19, his thoughts on the role that doctors play as teachers. Don't forget to follow the page Nike Labs on Instagram or LinkedIn. And if you liked it, please share this podcast with your friends and family. Um, Science literacy is something that really we should all be talking about. It's something that underpins so many of the problems in our community. The ability to engage with content, information, data in a scientifically coherent way. I appreciate your time. Thank you for joining me on this podcast. This is Anant, signing off.